Welcome to Build by a Boss. I'm your host, Evelyn Brooks, journalist, award-winning producer, author, founder of In My Solitude LA. On this podcast, you'll learn about the unique origin story of Fawn Weaver, the CEO, co-founder, and chief historian of Uncle Nearest Premium Whiskey, the first spirit brand in history commemorating an African-American. Nathan Uncle Nearest Green is now recognized as the master distiller who taught a young Jack Daniel how to make Tennessee whiskey. Fawn Weaver, along with a group of historians, unearthed the story of Uncle Nearest and now heads the most awarded premium whiskey brand in United States history. Uncle Nearest is sold in all 50 states, 10 countries outside of the U.S., and 12,000 locations worldwide. This is an incredible story that is powered by a woman who saw an opportunity to create a business and a bridge between the past and the future. So let's get into it. Here's Fawn Weaver. Enjoy. Hi, how are you? (laughs) I'm doing great. How are you? I'm fantastic. So good to talk to you. You know, when I found out about your brand, I was so excited. One, because I love whiskey. I love bourbon. (laughs) (laughs) So when I read about the story of how it all came about, I was just like, you know what? I have to talk to Fawn Weaver. So Thank you for making time out of your schedule. I know you have a lot going on, so thank it's, you for that. It's all good. So how are things going for you, your business, the folks in your state right now? How's everything going? Things are going great. It, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things where you have to sort of divide it up, uh, divide up that answer. So the, the answer is it's great, but because we're in the middle of a pandemic, so obviously that portion of it is not great, but just... The way that I'm wired, I typically always focus on whatever is good, no matter what's going on. So I'd say things are great. Our team is great. Our company's doing very well. It's a a good thing. So now your company, you're in Tennessee. Mm -hmm. I I read something where they called it Malt Disney World. (laughs) (laughs) Malt Disney World. You know, it's because it's the first time that a distillery has been built out for the entire family. So we have things for kids to do, things for the teetotaling grandmother to do. I am the child of two teetotalers. And so it was important for me that we created an experience where even if you love whiskey and bourbon, which, you know, of course, bourbon is a whiskey. If you, if you love uh, whiskey, you can actually bring everybody in your family out and everyone will have something to do because for us, it was always about more than whiskey. It was about really telling the story of Nearest Green, cementing the legacy of the first African-American master distiller. And we didn't want to limit that just to those who are between the ages of 21 and 45. And so there's a lot of things uh, that we are doing at the distillery. So whenever press come through, that's where that comes from is they come through and, and they look at it and go, Oh, y'all aren't building a distillery. <laughs> right. Y'all are building an amusement park that just has, <laughs> happens to have a distillery in the middle of it. So yeah. That's awesome. So now your title is CEO, co-founder and chief historian of Uncle Nearest Premium Whiskey, right? Mm-hmm. So can you explain how you learned about Uncle Nearest and how you discovered a story because 
it was buried in history for so long. Yeah, well, it was buried in history really anywhere outside of the homes of Lynchburg, Tennessee. And so the, the one thing about a small town is, is that a story that's in a small town doesn't leave the small town unless there is a reason. Uh, Jack Daniel, the reason why we know who he is all over the world is because he took it beyond Lynchburg. And, uh, but the person who, who taught Jack, the person who was the first African-American master distiller and the person was, who was actually his first master distiller, um, that's something that's all been updated and acknowledged since 2017 when we, myself, and, and the reason why it's chief historian is we brought together about 20 historians, archaeologists, genealogists, archivists, uh, archae- and, and we still actually have several genealogists and historians that are continue peeling the layer on this story and this legacy. But I first learned of it from a Clay Risen article in the New York Times in June 2016 when uh, Jack Daniels was uh, acknowledging that the person who had taught uh, a young Jack was likely not the uh, white preacher that had previously been credited, but it was likely his slave. They identified nearest as this man's slave. Now, we've done enough digging to know that this man actually had that, the preacher and the distiller who had been credited actually had no slaves on record. But what was very common during that period of time was the rental of slaves. And there, that happened for a number of reasons. The only thing we know is this particular preacher and distiller that had previously been given credit, there were a number of slaves on the property. And the, uh, the enslaved man who was the master distiller was a man by the name of Nearest Green, N-E-A-R-E-S-T, but everyone, including his friends and family, called him Uncle Nearest. And here it's very interesting because in a lot of parts of the country, an uncle or an aunt back in those days would have meant sort of like the good slave. And, right. and here that is not actually what they, that was meant by it. That was how they showed respect, whether you were white or black. So people in Lynchburg called Jack Daniel, uncle Jack, and they called nearest green uncle nearest. That was their way of saying, we respect you. And so that was uh, something that, is very unique is immediately following the civil war nearest green wasn't only the wealthiest african-american in the area he was also wealthier than a whole lot of his white neighbors and counterparts here in lynchburg and the surrounding areas and it's something you don't really see uh, during that period of time in the Mm -hmm. south where he amassed land so did his children and grandchildren and when you i think a part of what really made me start digging beyond just the surface of, oh, he taught Jack Daniel, was when I began finding and uncovering pictures of his children and his grandchildren that look like a wealthy elite. And you don't expect that from the children of a former slave. And so I knew that there had to be more to this story. And the more I dug, the more uh, it became very clear that this story was about something so much greater than whiskey mm-hmm. and kind of going back to Walt Disney World and, and the fact that we do everything and, and we say everything is more than whiskey is it wasn't just telling the person who taught Jack, which was acknowledged in 2016. We then, as we were doing more research, discovered he was in fact 
Jack's first master distiller. So they did officially update their records to now reflect that. Uh, if you go on any tour at Jack Daniel Distillery, you will see very clearly Neeris's story throughout and who he was. But in addition to being the first master distiller, he was also the master distiller for distillery number seven. So the original property where Jack Daniel and Nearest Green both worked for the same man, Mm -hmm. uh, that is where distillery number seven was. And so when we began going back to figure out who was this man and, and found that he was the first and only master distiller that we know of for distillery number seven, that's how we were able to really begin to piece together Uh, his legacy. But ironically and sadly at the same time, not only was he the first African-American master distiller of a major brand, he remains to this day the only one. Wow. What a story. I mean, it's just incredible if we think about how long he basically worked in in anonymity, this story. Um, And and for you to uncover it. And, and then when did you decide to actually start a brand in his name? Like, how did that come about? Well, when you're doing the research, originally when I was doing the research, it was for a book and a movie. And, and that is the way that we tend to tell the story of people. The challenge is, is that we have so much media in this day and age that we forget very clearly the stories that we just watched. I mean, I think for the first however many weeks of quarantine, this Tiger King guy, everybody knew who he was. And Lord knows four weeks from now, hopefully nobody will be talking about that (laughs) nonsense anymore. That's the good side of our, you know, our forgetful memories. But then the other side is, is I remember going with Nearest and his, uh, his family, several of his descendants. We went to go see Hidden Figures. And Uh we come out of Hidden Figures and, I mean, the whole time we're sitting there and we're cheering and we're rooting and and it was just a great, great movie. It was one of the first times, if not the only time, that I've seen a movie set in that period of time in which there was both a white hero and a black hero. You usually don't get that. No, nope. in the same film. Now, unfortunately, I later found out because the same agent who packaged that deal is the same one that's doing it for Nearest Green. That the Kevin Costner role was actually made up, but that's all. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but at that time, I thought he was a real person, and I was so excited. So we leave out of the theater, and we're in this sort of lobby area. And I said, that is the way that the movie has to be. That is how we're going to tell your ancestor's story, because this story has a white hero and a black hero. The fact that Jack did not see Nearest Green as an enslaved man, but, but rather as a mentor and a teacher right. and later a friend. And the fact that there was this relationship between these two families in Lynchburg, that's how we have to tell this remarkable story. And so we were super excited. We talked about it for days and then we kind of went on about our way. Mm -hmm. And then I realized a couple months later, I could not recall the name of the people that Taraji P. Henson, Janelle Monae, and Octavia Spencer played. Right. No we remember their names, but we remember yeah. their names and we remember their faces. But remember at the end of the movie, they show you these, you know, pictures of the real people. We couldn't pick any of them out in the lineup. No, no. One and of so, them just died recently. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Catherine. 
Catherine. Mm-hmm. So the person who Taraji played, she, she recently passed away. But the thing is, is that we move on. And the people who tell the story, the actors who tell the stories is who we begin to associate with that person. Mm-hmm. And so it is entertainment. And you're talking about someone for the first time in my life. So I, I'll be 44 this year. It's the first time that I have been able to positively identify an African-American at being at the forefront and indisputed. So most of the times, you know, there are people that are rumors and things like that, but indisputed that this African-American was at the beginning of one of the most iconic American brands in yes. history. Yes. We could not let that story disappear with entertainment. Right. And so the question became, how do we make sure that 100 years from now, someone is not having to come back and do what we just did? Yes, unearth the story again. Yes. And the only way that we were going to be able to make sure that 200 years from now, 100 years from now, people still knew who Nearest was and his legacy is it was going to have to go beyond entertainment. They were going to have to still be looking at his name on a bottle. Yes. The only reason we know who Johnny Walker is, Jim Beam, Jack Daniel, we only know who they are and are still talking about them because we're still drinking their juice. Yes, yes. And so this became how we would instill this name and this legacy for all time. Now, your background. What were you doing before you decided to start this? And did you have to learn a new industry? What was your entry point? Well, I had to learn a new industry, but I've learned probably six or seven industries throughout the course of my career. And so my husband teases me that I'm the only person he's ever met that goes in, fully learns an industry, builds strategy around it for other companies, and then decides to move to a different industry. (laughs) Usually people sort of master and stay. Right. So I've mastered this. Okay, it's time to move on. Uh, This is the first time that I have zero question that I am not moving on because it is much bigger than the industry itself and much bigger than the brand itself. But for me, from my first company was uh, a PR and special events firm, and that was 26 years ago. So I began that when I was 18 years old, and and over time I began investing in different things, uh, real estate, and then investing in and uh, lifestyle brands and restaurants and things of that. So what you, anything you would consider a lifestyle brand, clothing, I was investing in. And in some cases, it was my own. In some cases, it was investing in someone else's business and then just running strategy, PR, and marketing and sales strategy from behind the scenes. And I've done that successfully for quite some time. This is the first time I've ever had to come out public. And the reason is, is, is one of the first people that I hired for this company was a spokesperson. Right. And we had an entire strategy <laughs> of this is how it's going to launch, this is how it's going to roll out. I mean, I, I wrote the PR strategy. And so this particular person was great. And then we moved forward, we launched the brand and nobody wanted to talk to him. Mm-hmm. They only wanted to talk to the person who actually did the research. Right. And it was, I, I think it didn't really dawn on any of us that the research side of this was so important that a spokesperson for the brand was not going to work. Right. It, it literally, the two and two went together. And so I was <laughs> forced out front uh, and, and for about the first mm, two years, I didn't even go by CEO. I just went by chief historian. 
because all I was doing was telling the history, was telling the story. And as the the brand has has continued to grow and taken on a life of its own, now I do go by CEO and chief historian. (laughs) Got it. So now what type of challenges did you encounter? I read something, and, and you can explain this to me because I thought that was really interesting. The whiskey is made with the Lincoln County process. How did you create the whiskey? Was it based on the old formula or did you create a new formula? How, how did that work? So there's two, there's two parts to that. So the Lincoln County process is named after the county where Nears Green lived and where he made whiskey. And that is the one thing that distinguishes a Kentucky bourbon from a Tennessee whiskey is yeah. the Lincoln County process. It is okay. taking a traditional bourbon and filtering it through sugar maple charcoal. Mm. It doesn't add anything, which is why uh, it's it's still even a Tennessee whiskey is still considered a straight bourbon whiskey is because it doesn't add anything. It only removes congeners and and those things, fusel oils, those things you really do not want in your alcohol because that's the stuff that gives you the hangover. Right. So you you pull a good amount of that out before it ever goes into the barrel. So that's the process. But when you are starting, for us, we don't bottle not one uh, drop, not one ounce of whiskey that is younger than seven years old. And so this goes back to actually the days where before even Nearest and Jack, where it is very, very common to find another distillery that is making whiskey the way that you will make it or the way that you are making it and you buy it and then you do your own process to it and you bottle it. And so that's what we have done with Uncle Nearest. There is, there are two distilleries in Tennessee that make the amount of production that we needed, well, technically three, uh, that we needed. And we began working with two of them. I bet the early taste testing was something mm-hmm. to see. <laughs> <laughs> It was we we it was really really simple because we loved uh, very quickly what we chose. We loved it. We were already familiar with it, and it was a matter of uh, doing our own thing at the end. So one of Jack's descendants actually came out of retirement. She she worked for the family business for thirty one years, and when she retired from Jack Daniel Distillery, she was their head of whiskey operation. And when we began working on this, she came to me and she says, listen, if you ever decide to honor Nearest with a bottle, I will come out of retirement to make sure you get it right. And she did. And she's been our head of whiskey operations the last three plus years. And she has done a phenomenal job. Um, We know this because we're the most awarded whiskey or bourbon of 2019, period. There's no one that was awarded more. We won every top award from world's best to double gold, San Francisco. We've, we've won everything that you could possibly win. We have won. And we absolutely give credit to Sherry for that. So I saw that you were on the cover of American Whiskey Magazine, which is yes. history. Yes, the, it was. The day that you were preparing for that photo shoot, do you remember what was going through your mind knowing that that moment where you were on the cover of the magazine, it's like one of the premier magazines in the industry. What was that like for you? You know, here's, here's the funny thing. And I don't really take that kind of stuff seriously. And by that, I mean, I do interviews a lot. I do uh, a lot of TV and I don't watch it. 
I don't read the articles. That article I can tell you, I haven't read. Uh, <laughs> every single time someone brings me that cover to sign it, I feel a little odd about it. And so one of the things I've been really good about doing, and I think I got this from my father, is I'm completely unimpressed by myself. I am always uh, striving to achieve something so great and so much greater than whatever is in the moment. So the irony of it is, is while I was in the moment, I was absolutely thinking about what I needed to do next. That's just how I'm (laughs) wired. It never... I, I never stayed in that moment longer than taking the shots and then hopping on a plane and getting to the next thing I needed to do. I thought it was really great. You have a very diverse staff. Why is that important to you as a brand? Well, yeah, well, we wanted this to become one of America's great brands. And you can't become one of America's great brands if you do not appeal to all of America. And America has shifted greatly since the majority of what we would consider great American brands that exist now. Uh, It has shifted a great deal over the last 30 years. And so if we were going to build a brand that was for everyone, we needed to make sure who was around the table was everyone. And so our company looks an awful lot like America. If you go down the board and you look at, say, for instance, the percentage of women in America is a little bit uh, more than 50%. In our company, it's 50.05%, I think, or 50.5% in our company. When you look at African Americans, for instance, we're 13% of the population. Uh, we over-index in our company. And we're 23 or 24% and I tease that, you know, hey, it needed to be that way, given the subject. Uh, <laughs> but we, we literally, I, I went down not long ago because I had said from day one that this would be the most diverse company in the spirits business. And I literally went and looked at all the pictures of all of our team members and counted up how many Latinos we had and and Native Americans and all the rest of this stuff and came to the conclusion that we were one person shy, one Asian shy of hitting our population percentage on Asians (laughs) and that I was really sucking at the American Indian thing because we didn't have any. But outside of that, we, we look like America. And when I tell you, when, when people look at our company, even right now, where everyone, so many people have just kind of like retreated, they're just waiting to get out to figure out what the world will be. And so there's kind of sitting at home frustrated and bored. I can tell you, there is nobody on the Uncle Nearest team that is sitting at home bored. We mm-hmm. are all working just like we work from the field. We just are doing it from home. And so even now, the, the level of growth of our company over this period of time, where for, I would venture to say, all of my counterparts would not have this experience, is because we have a team that is so diverse that we see things in so many different ways that we're able to have ideas nonstop and just keep executing. And if an idea doesn't work, we pivot. If it doesn't work, we pivot. And we do this constantly, but I really truly think it's because it's a room full of people who think differently, who have different backgrounds, and it's giving us an unbelievable advantage. I'd I'd almost say we have an unfair advantage in this industry Mm -hmm. (laughs) because everyone else in the industry in leadership is white male. Right. And we have a leadership that is everybody. And it's, it's serving us well. 
And so who is your ideal customer? Because I, I know you have different price points in terms of your whiskey. Um, it's all over the world. Who, who, who are you trying to reach ultimately? Well, our customers is everybody who buys a $50 bottle of whiskey. That's, that's our customers. It's super simple. So for a lot of brands, I know that there's a target of a particular demographic, a particular yes. color, a particular, yeah, we don't have that. It's the reason why we're the fastest growing independent American whiskey brand in U.S. history. We literally looked at the pie and said, we want all of it. <laughs> we, we don't, I don't understand this thought process of literally going after a sliver of a pie when right. you could actually go after the pie. And so, <laughs> exactly. yeah, that is but, the greatest but, analogy. Yes, oh, eat the whole pie. The yes. whole pie. The, the, the irony of it is, is that when I first began and I was doing capital raises and it was really interesting to me and we were, we were gaining distribution and that kind of thing. And every single time someone would ask me, who's your target demo? Because I was new to this industry. I knew that they would be looking at me to answer that question. And that would, for them, determine whether or not I knew what I was doing. So every single person who asked me the question, I would give them the answer I knew they were looking for. Mm-hmm. So if you were an investor or a potential investor, who's your target demographic? White males ages 29 to 54. Right. If you were an African-American and you came to me, who's your demographic? African-Americans. And I mean, like literally <laughs> right. it, my demo would change. I wasn't lying. Yeah. I was simply giving them the demo they wanted to hear. Yeah. And now that our company has had the level of success that it's had and continuing to have, now all of them know that the plan the entire time was to add up all those people who I told each one yes. was the demo. World domination. And, That's the plan. And, <laughs> and that is the plan. And that is the plan. So, yeah, no, we, we never... We never um, went after a, a certain group. And we've, we've gotten some criticism from that, for that uh, from African-Americans where they will challenge me on the fact that I don't target African-Americans enough. I'm like, you don't think we're targeted enough? I, I, I think all the other brands got that target covered. So what? <laughs> right. I'm, I'm good. I'm okay. Well, if and, you read the story, you know, to me, that's kind of an automatic tie. I mean, that's... Yes. What drew me in in the first place, I didn't really need you to target me any more than that. Just knowing the story, the origin story of the brand was everything. I I would think the having the origin story, having an African-American woman founding and leading, having an all African-American board, having, I I think we're good. (laughs) That is the one place that we have gotten criticism for, but, but from African. Americans that are like, you're not, you know, you're not focused enough on like guys. <laughs> I kind of, it's, it's, uh, my favorite movie of all times is guess who's coming to dinner with Sydney Portier and Tracy Spencer and Catherine Hepburn. And, and there's this one, this one part where Sydney Portier and Tracy Spencer are having this conversation and Tracy Spencer is talking about the dancing. And he said, you mean to tell me that there's like, you don't have any, the, the kids don't have any kind of special rhythm, the black kids and, and Sydney Portier, said no there's no special rhythm 
The difference is you do the Watusi, we are the Watusi. Right. And that's kind of how I look at it. Like there's not anything that we have to do specific because we are, we are it. When it comes to black history month, I'm like, uh, guys, we kind of are black history. It just is what it is. Well, do you think it had to do, maybe it's ad dollars, you know, maybe it's, you know, when there are specific Mm -hmm. events or magazines or is it, is that what they mean when they say you're not focused enough? Well, no, there, there is, it, it depends on, on who it is. A, a lot do had the thought process and the perception that the entire company would be black. It's not. Okay. Okay. African-Americans, we make up 13% of the population. So if, if my company is 87% black versus 13% black, isn't that kind of flipped if right. we're going after everyone? And so because we're a, about a quarter African-American, that... And a lot of people didn't realize that. So if you go to an event, the person representing uh, Uncle Nearest may be white. And so you had some African-Americans that are like, why are white people representing? Like, um, they're guys, mm, 76% of the population. I don't know what to tell you. And so if we wanted the brand to be embraced by everybody, we had to embrace everybody. And I was very clear about that from the beginning. When we do events, we don't do events that are specific for a color. We do events that are going to bring in the most people and are going to have the greatest ROI. So I was very, very clear in building this that the only legacy I had to uphold was near screens. And what I could do with excellence was make sure the world knew his name. Got it. And so- I wasn't going to put any limitations on it. Absolutely. And so I guess one of the ways you're doing that is with the foundation. Yeah, well, that's one. So uh, uh, the irony is, is that Uncle Nearest Premium Whiskey is only one of 12 things that we are doing to cement the legacy of Nearest Green. And one of the other ones that you're referring to is a part of the Nearest Green Foundation. And it's the Nearest Green Legacy Scholarship Fund. So all of Nearest's descendants that are of college age, every single one of them, whether they're in school for their master's, PhD, JD, their bachelor, their undergrad, they have a full ride. And they only have two requirements uh, once they've proven their their blood. So they have to find themselves on the the family tree that I have done with a a ton of genealogists. So I, I know everybody on the tree. And they have to show where they are on the tree, where their, their folks are, their grandparents are on the tree. They have to know their own family tree, which most kids don't right. know their own family tree. So a part of the scholarship is you have to, uh, when you apply, it's, it's a very casual application because they're going through one of their relatives to do it. But <laughs> our, ma- our master blender is, uh, is fifth generation. So Nearest Green's great, great granddaughter. And she, she oversees this program for us. So they're really just sending it to their cousin or their aunt or, you know, and, but you, we still require that they send their portion of the family tree. And the other thing that they must do is once they are in school, they must maintain a 3.0 GPA. Because if we're going to pay for you to go to school, you're going to do the work. Right. And, and the only other thing they have to do other than show that they are descendant, know their family tree, and get a 3.0 is after they have graduated, they go into the workforce, they go into business for themselves, whatever they do, and become a success, uh, they have to go back and find someone less fortunate 
pay for them to go through college and to do it in their ancestor's name. And so every generation, people will be going through college. And and for Nearest's descendants, I encourage them to go all the way to PhD. They have a full ride no matter how far they go. And we pay for everything, even like we have one student who was our first graduate from, uh, with her bachelor's, and she graduated with honors from University of Tennessee. She then decided to go to Alabama, and then she decided she wants to get her JD. And so she reached out and says, hey, do you pay for the LSATs? Well, yeah, that's a part of being able to get into law school and to get your JD. So we pay for every aspect of it, and the idea is that they will then pay it forward. And long after I am here and all of us who currently work for Uncle Nearest, that scholarship fund just continues on paying for people in the name of Nearest Green. That's amazing. So you're creating generational wealth through education. Yep. Excellent. At the end of the podcast, I always ask three things that you do in your 24 hours that you feel add to your success. I have the same 24 hours as Oprah. She does something that I may or may not do, and I want to know what it is. So what are three things that you feel you do every day that contributes to your overall success in life and business? Yeah. So my my husband and I, as well as my siblings, and as well as those in my company, we all do something called Miracle Mornings. It is a book the book is actually of the same name, is Miracle Morning. And in it, it talks about what successful people do before 8 a.m. Yes. And the acronym is SAVERS, which is basically silence, which is meditation or prayer, whatever uh, you prefer, or both. Silence, affirmations, visualizations, uh, exercise, and reading. So finding something to read. And then uh, I have always, my entire adulthood, have been a person who ties, ties of my, of my resources, ties of my, my financial, and I decided to also tithe of my time. So my first two hours and 40 minutes go to savers. It goes to God. And so that time frame every single morning is going through and determining what is my, what I call my HBU for the day, my highest and best use of my time. Yes. And I lay it out every single morning during that first two hours and 40 minutes. And the ability to get more done than your average bear has to do with just an unsatiable planning and making sure that I am going from top to bottom. So meaning I have my big three things that I have for the day that I want to make sure that I get done. And I don't allow a whole bunch of little things like email responses and Slack responses and all the rest of that to take away from my big three. And once I have the big three done, then I get to all the little things that I think a lot of people, and I'd venture to say the less successful people spend most of their days on is that sort of reactive versus the proactive. Fabulous. Okay. Last question. This podcast is called Built by a Boss. What is your definition of a boss? Ooh, you know, oh my gosh. I would have to say definition of a boss. A good boss is servant leader. Yes. And so in, in our company, we don't have a hierarchy. I remember I was doing a, uh, a loan at one point with one of the banks and they were looking for an org chart and they were so confused by my org chart because it went side to side versus top to bottom. 
And they're like, we don't understand this. Help us understand this. And I said, it's, it's very, it's very simple. We have a, something called radical transparency in our, in our company, which means you speak up, you speak with truth and we all move on. And it is best idea wins. And so I have, I can tell you part-time ambassadors in the field that will trump an idea that I put forward. If their idea is better, their idea moves forward. And so our company, I'd say in term, the way that I see a boss, a good boss, is one that allows their team members to shine greater than themselves. Excellent. Now, I know you're on social because I see you on there talking about your investment um, ideas and opportunities for people. <laughs> I love yes. that. Um, yes. If you have anything for us, let me know, but also just <laughs> let people know where they can find you. I'm always on Uncle Nearest. So Uncle Nearest is everywhere, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. It's all Uncle Nearest. And, and I pretty much troll those. So <laughs> I'm on those responding to people all the time. So you'll actually find me on Uncle Nearest sites a heck of a lot more than you will find me on my own pages. Excellent. Well, Vaughn Weaver, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I know everybody will really enjoy this podcast, so I'm just, I can't wait to hear the reaction to it. You've given us so much to think about and to apply in our own lives. So thank you so much. And I think um, people are going to uh, be drinking a lot of um, Uncle Nearest in the near future. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. And, and so does our team and so does Nearest's family. All right. Thank you and have a great day. Thank you. You too. I'm Evelyn Brooks, and you've been listening to Built by a Boss. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Vaughn Weaver. You can subscribe at Apple, Spotify, or your favorite place if you enjoy the episode. Please consider giving us a five-star review and a comment. It really helps other people find us who might also like the podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and visit our website. You can also find me at InMySolitudeLA.com, where I host courses on how to create new streams of income, intention and goal-setting workshops, and products for aspirational people like you. As always, thank you so much for listening. Until next time, be kind, be brave, be better, be a boss.